Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm, I'm much better than I was yesterday. My house, my new house, is finally settled. It has been a very strange process. Uh, I don't know if any of our listeners have been through uh, a property deal going through probate court, but I think that is uh, a, a potential reality TV show that could really, really be a hit. Uh, it's very nasty. It's full-on gladiatorial. It features some of, I think, maybe the most predatory uh, dickhead people that we have on the planet at the moment who are really just uh, rabid uh, speculators, you know? Um, yeah. And the guy who was bidding against me, uh, you don't see everybody because everything's on video now. And the judge, although she's, you know, sitting, you know, on the bench... It's a terrible legal position, and she's really pissed off about it. So the whole atmosphere is really, uh, yeah, it's just tense. And there's anything from just you know blocks of land to you know two million dollar houses. It's just on for young and old. So there are these people popping up, sometimes just names, sometimes faces. Sometimes you know they can be family members, they can be just these awful uh, hedge fund real estate speculators. Uh, but the guy who was pitted against me was in Houston with this uh, pseudo macho beard thing going on, which I got to say, I'm really, really down on this certain beard look. I think you know what I'm, I'm talking about. I do. I'm not against beards full stop. Um, and it's also kind of matches his hairdo, you know, it's, and it just, Oh, I just didn't like him at all. Was it the shade you know, sides really... haircut with the yeah that the kind of, kind of thing? Oh, yes. I can picture this guy. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. The yeah, the you know the um the appropriation of defanged masculinity, right? The appropriation of masculinity that has been defanged, I should say. Um, that's how I interpret it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how I see it. You know, uh, and there are an awful lot of these guys around, uh, but they're, they're not real. You know, they, you, you don't actually see them hanging out at bars with other uh, guys because I think they all see, see through each other, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's not real masculinity on any class level from real working class blue collar to professional class. Mm-hmm. They're not really any class other than uh, they're beard guys. You beard know? guys, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you got through all that. It does sound like a nightmare. And it really got me thinking. But before I go too deep into my thought, can I get my creative challenge for the day? Because this might take a second. Yeah, look, this is this is a, a really special one. And it's the, it's for the first time... I'm going to allow you to do a quick Google for some uh, background support. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. What you are looking up is a a last name, a sort of Hungarian name. S-Z-O-N-D-I. Zondi. The Zondi Test. I see it. This is an extremely perverse... Uh, psychological exam and I'd like you to just give a thumbnail overview for our listeners so they're 
hip to, to what's involved and just how perverse this uh, diagnostic tool is. Huh. Who scares you the most? That's what I'm seeing. It's pictures of faces uh, in black and white. This is looking like it might be the, the 30s or the 40s. Um, yeah. Looks like we have some Depression-era garb here. I'm just looking at the thumbnails. Um, oh, what dark impulses are you hiding? Okay, so this is... That's the key. Yeah. That's the key. Okay. So the the idea is that people... This is a kind of uh, personality Rorschach uh, type of diagnostic tool where people are shown uh, photographs. What they don't know is that all of the people they're seeing are uh, psychopathic criminals of some sort. Oh, dear. And how they gravitate... What, you know, what faces speak to them is a clue or was considered to be a clue to their deepest, darkest problems. It's a very, very weird idea. But that's just a reference point model for you. Okay. What your challenge is, is to come up with a really bizarre psychological diagnostic test. <laughs> and... You know, this is you having some fun. You 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 may be imagining yourself working for the CIA okay. in a kind of resurrected MK Ultra thing, but you have total anonymity and an unlimited checkbook. You can do whatever you want uh, to experiment and discover more about the darkest impulses of the human mind and personality. Okay. I like it. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Well, oh man, I'm going to have to think about that. Okay, so speaking about your current trials and tribulations in uh, probate court, is that what this is called? Yeah, yeah. Um, It got me thinking about real estate in general because Rios and I are moving to a new place next month, and we're lucky enough that one of our friends, our very close friends since I was in uh, high school, is a landlord who owns... 30 properties or so so it was easy for us we asked him for a place to stay because you know there was a guy smoking meth in our backyard and well not in our backyard but on the fence right by our backyard because we live next to an abandoned house and we thought i thought you know if i can smell the meth then that means my son who's sitting on my lap can smell the meth and you just you don't want that Right, you don't want any of that kind of stuff near your kid. No, because it can blow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, we decided to move, and uh, before we asked my friend to move to one of his properties, we were looking around, and as anybody who has moved recently uh, would know, it's the prices are getting insane on these houses. They, they are they indeed. Just keep they are up. indeed. Yeah, they just keep going up. I remember when I got out of high school in 2005, I got a two-bedroom apartment in the town that I live in now for $400 a month, um, which is pretty much unheard of, even in Oklahoma, even now. I have no idea what the prices must be like in places that I used to live, like Portland, for example. But I was thinking about this kind of growth, and I've had a lot of conversations with my friend because we talk about twice a week, um, about the purchasing of property and how to build uh, assets and portfolios and 
you know, money that you can pass on to your, your children. I've personally never cared much about money at all until I had a little boy. And now I think about it a lot more than I used to because you want to have something to leave for the kid. So we're talking about sure. it. And, you know, and he is obviously very much on the end of, you know, this is a great way to build a nice little nest egg for yourself. I think that the total, uh, if he were to liquidate what he has right now, I think he would have $2 million, right? Um, but the real issue that we're talking about is these companies like BlackRock, these hedge funds, these beard brigades who kind of <laughs> swoop in and buy up entire neighborhoods and then, you know, just make it life terrible for everybody else. And so I thought about this. I thought you might have something uh, because I, I don't know if this exists, although it being 2021, every idea that I that I think of that turns out to have a, a precedent has already existed. Right. But can you tell me if there are laws that are time bound right now I'm, I'm not talking about the purge where for you know one night you're <laughs> you're allowed to stab people in the face what i mean is say you have this real estate problem and it's driven by rampant uh speculation that's what is essentially to my mind driving up the prices on all of these uh houses and um so but you have this issue where on the one hand you could say all right, anybody who rents a house or buys a house, I should say, is obligated by law to live in it. This is the standard practice if you get something like an FHA loan. You have to live in the house for at least a year. And I think right. that that's a really good idea, but my buddy obviously is very against that because, well, he lives in a very nice house in a very nice neighborhood and wouldn't want to move into these little uh, rink, kind of rinky-dink houses that he's buying and flipping. But then I thought, okay, well, what if there was a time-bound law where for 10 years that was the rule, that you did have to live in whatever property you purchased for at least one year? But then you would have a 10-year period where, uh, you know, where it was just back to, as we said in the last episode, the Wild West. I, I don't actually understand why we don't have more... Uh, laws that that take time into account like this it feels like once law becomes law it's just the law until somebody changes the law and um yeah i don't i mean why not have it be the law for for three months out of the year or something like that i think that's too uh creative and too gen you know genuinely progressive for people to uh to get their heads around i mean Administrators, bureaucrats, policymakers, I don't think are lateral enough to take on board that idea. I think that there is an enormous amount of uh, potential in something like that to present it in a fear mongering sense of mm -hmm. any sort of slowdown, any tactical control. I mean, think about this another way any kind of tactical control of the movement uh, of society and lowercase c culture through time is, is really responded to quite negatively. I mean, we're, we, we, we're, we're willing to live with the idea of endlessly growing government, more authoritarianism, 
uh, mask mandate, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. But yet, if someone puts forward an idea of like, well, we're going to try something out. I mean, remember Harry S. Truman, one of the most mysterious presidents. The S didn't stand for anything. We believe he was the, the man who gave the two orders to drop the atomic bombs on Japan. He's He was a judge. He was never a lawyer, uh, a failed haberdashery sort of owner. I mean, very mysterious president. Um, but he famously, you know, from Missouri, he famously said, you know, well, we'll try out these policies, and if they don't work, we'll try out some other ones. Yeah. And right. in a way, that is so small-town Main Street common sense right. that, uh, you know, there is no big agenda. There's no big promise. There's no, and there's also no weaseling. You know, he wasn't saying, well, you know, I don't have really an idea, uh, which you could say that many of our political leaders today really don't have any idea. Um, I think that would be a really interesting idea. I, I think that maybe the 10-year thing, a 10-year cycle, it would be something that would be a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Because that's looming a little bit larger as a time span now with micro generations. Uh, I mean, you could say 10 years is what you'd need to actually give anything a chance. <clears throat> but I think that might be a bit much for people to, uh, mm -hmm. to come to terms with. But I think that, you know, we have so many economic gurus who don't know where their butthole is. Sure. They would be very afraid of anyone tampering with their incompetence, you know. And right. I, I just, I, I think that would, I, it would, it, there would be support from, I think, the common sense Main Street uh, parking lot level people in America. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of other people would just go, no, 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 we, we want to really control what's going on here. And Right. Uh, I mean, think about the beard guy, you know? I mean, would he... He's not going to let go. <laughs> well, no, because you know, we, we wants... have to shoot him between the eyes. This is where this is where the authoritarianism comes in, in my plan. See, you have to, you have to kill all of those people first. Just kidding, NSA, uh, FBI. But, no, I mean, I, I think that it... Uh, all joking aside, I do think that it really would require a complete rewiring of the way that our brains work. Something that got me thinking about this was I was on uh, Google and looking at updated pictures of the um, Sagrada Familia Basilica, and it was due to be done in 2026. Now it's been pushed back to 2032 due to COVID restrictions, but that is a basilica that has been in in construction for 144 years and i got to thinking well geez the people who started working on that and the generation after them on down the line about probably about six or seven generations of builders all worked on this thing with no pretense that they were ever going to see the finished basilica and i thought wow if we could all sort of put our minds into that mindset as you said um you know we'll try things out and and see if they work you know living our 80 year spans here with no pretense to actually getting the things that we're trying to do correct 
but instead saying, hey, like we're going to try things because perhaps five or six generations down the line will start to hit on some things that actually work. But like that would really hurt the ego, I think, of, of people alive today to realize that we're not, everybody wants to be, they want everything to be perfect right now. And I don't think that's in the cards for us. So we might as well start messing around. Well, I, I, I would certainly support that. I have two thoughts. I, I think from memory that uh, the, uh, the Basilica was, and, and that kind of grand historic cultural vision, I think we, we were talking about that in one of our early, early episodes. Early episodes, yeah. About, yeah, and, and, and as a way of, of kind of uh, conveying our notion of culture with a capital C, something that endures across time. And I think this is... the one of the key issues for this moment in history. Do we have any vision whatsoever? I mean, I'm, I'm moving to, to Boulder City, which is, you know, the home of the Hoover Dam. And uh, although that's a giant, you know, civil engineering project, it was cooperation between 11 states. To me, it seems like a great social uh, achievement as well as an engineering achievement. And I frankly can't imagine anything like that happening today. I mean, we can't get that kind of consensus, that kind of bipartisan agreement, that, that vision that mm -hmm. is shared by people. Mm -hmm. uh, but here's, here's an, uh, I think, what would come to a lot of people's minds very quickly with, with the kind of plan that you're thinking of. And I think that it, it suggests that people instantly go to money and to property. And I think that people would look at rent control. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I, do, I do admit that that is, is complicated. Uh, sure. I had a friend, <laughs> I had a writer friend in, uh, who, uh, in San Francisco, and he was, uh, a, well, he is a very, very, uh, well, he's just a, a crusty eccentric mm -hmm. of the first water. And he had been a National Book Critic Circle Award reader, you know, and mm -hmm. a book reviewer and artist. And he, so he'd collected thousands of books. And he was on the top floor of a four-stair uh, walk-up on Jackson Street in San Francisco, right at the, uh, right on Russian Hill, but right overlooking Chinatown. And he was in a rent control situation. I mean, it was a funky place. And he was a funky person then. Uh, I think he still is. But his rent was controlled at, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. less than just under $700 a month. I mean, unheard of then. I mean, it would be more like seven to ten, twelve thousand $12,000 a month now. You know, it's prime. Uh, it was, it's the top floor. He had the top floor with a view, you know. It, it's just inconceivable. And I was I was visiting him once, and we were we were out in Chinatown, and I, I said, man, you're looking kind of nervous. What, I, I'm sort of getting this jumpy vibe, and uh, he said, you know, I think my landlord is having me followed. I'm afraid that that maybe there's a hit out on me, and I said, <laughs> oh really. Really? I said, I'm not, whatever drug you're taking, I'm not going to share that with you. I thought we were going to go up on the roof and have a little bit of, uh, you know, enjoy the city lights with some interesting uh -huh. substance. Uh -huh. But I thought, no, 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 no. 
But I'm not sure that he was entirely wrong. Mm. And so, I mean, I think the problem... So I, I think what, what there, there are two things here. I mean, what you're proposing is that something that would turn over and wouldn't be locked in mm-hmm. forever. You know, that's the kind of the heart of your idea. And I don't think it's just financial. I think you're sort of proposing, what about laws that have a kind of a time envelope to them? Yes. And yeah. I, th- I think that's a terrific idea. Somehow, though, because remember our, our ongoing theme is everything turns in, into its opposite. I have a feeling that people would read that as, oh, instead of like, you know, a limited uh, duration for Supreme Court justices or whatever, I think people would think of this as like, oh, we're going to have rent control forever or we're going to put in this, you know, I, it, it would be a complete misreading of what you're proposing. Right. That's how I would see that getting delivered in the real And I don't really have any other explanation for that other than people are kind of contrarian and thick and they mm. worry rather than giving that, that kind of new format approach a chance, you know? Yeah, no, I definitely could see that. That's the eternal problem with every law that gets passed is that people are thick. Um, <laughs> but... I think that if we expanded this out as well, you mentioned that you know that this is a time-bound thing, and we're speaking specifically on the topic of, um, of rent and home prices and what have you. But I I just wish there was some way to to call time on progress in general. I know that that is an absolutely impossible idea, but in my utopia, my my version of utopia is not one that is completely devoid of progress but one where the progress can take a breather for a couple of days maybe at least like the idea of the sabbath but for any kind of (laughs) any kind of progress that we're making like boston dynamics takes a few months break on building their robotic dogs which are now being programmed to patrol the u.s mexico border to sniff out uh, people trying to get over into Texas, um, just a just a break. That's really um, there's no real political uh, project that I I get behind because all of them are based on an unstoppable march towards their ideal world as they see it, and my ideal world, so to speak, is one in which. We, we stop trying to make an ideal world every once in a while and just kind of let things relax. It just, it feels like, uh, you know, just it, that things are getting wound tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until eventually they burst and everybody suffers and then we have to pick up the pieces and start building it again. And it's, you know, it's just burnout. It's collective cultural burnout that we, we could just use a, a work jubilee or a, you know, debt jubilee and and just fucking party and have sex and drink beer for 10 years and then get back to it. Well, I think what we're, you know, what's really being talked about here is is it very much the heart of the idea of what modernity means. You know, it, it really, I think right. if you wanted to give that, that some real, uh, a, a, a generalized but nonetheless accurate uh descriptor i think you would say it it, it was a moment in human history 
particularly focused uh, on the Western nations at the time, but I think certainly not exclusive to them at all. I think it's a global phenomenon where progress was seen as an inevitable force that was not under anyone's control and really didn't answer to any notions of, of human progress, whether technological or sociological. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was, went back to sort of, uh, uh, my first night in this uh, hotel motel, I, I just needed to take some refuge in some real serious literature. So I, I, I was reading uh, early T.S. Eliot, and uh, God, there's some beautiful structure of mind in his stuff. Uh, but there, his, his capability of, of delivering an aphorism or a summation comment out of you know, pretty random sort of musings that are very conversational, extremely modernist. Um, it's like got a line, you know, from the the Proofrock collection, but they knew that it was modern. And I, I don't need to give that really that much context. I think you can pick up on the idea of, of, of that sentiment that people of the time, and so we're talking like 1910, 1912, so, you know, more than 100 years ago now, uh, people were, were wanting to know something was modern. And at that point, modernity was more defined in terms of, of, of uh, a philosophy and social progress and kind of a tonal mood quality, not pure technology. But I think we've crossed over to now the point where technology is so much the driving force and behind that, of course, is the beard guys and their hedge fund money and their venture mm -hmm. capital things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, really, Silicon Valley was never uh, the computer nerds making stuff in their garages. God, those would be cool. I mean, they're kind of autistic and, and weird and they, you know, a little bit sort of tragic. But... No, it was always Wall Street. It was always the money. It was always a new way to control money, you know? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, none of it would have gotten off the ground. Yeah. So, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think that we could... Time-sensitive legislation and policy-making and trial, you know, not trial and error, hopefully, but trial of ideas and just mm. saying, well, let's just see, let's give this a chance. Yeah. Um, or you could flip it around the other way and say, well, we'll take affirmative action in, in uh, college admissions, for instance, just as, as one example. Mm -hmm. let's, let's give that a framework of 10 years and say, let's have some goals and objectives that we want to see achieved. Right. Not just for these individuals, but for communities. We want to see African-American or communities of, of color as, as neighborhoods and precincts grow and advance. We want, some, we want some objectives so that in 10 years' time we can go back and go, well, was this working or not, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't see that we, we do that across anything. Um, everyone wants to have things so much. But, but here's a another way to think about this and and you've triggered this thought i hadn't thought of this at all but um i was listening to this uh radio thing and i believe the speaker was uh a catholic priest but he could have been a psych but he's a pastoral psychologist 
and he was advocating that young couples uh, have a kind of plan about marriage and a real exchange of not just vows, but of ideas and, and divisions of labor and, you know, a real kind of contract in a business sense. And uh, it was a talkback thing. I, I, I just suddenly jumped to AM radio, and I, I don't normally listen to AM radio. And people were ringing in and were all over him about, no, you're going to kill the romance, and you can't plot out love. And, you know, mm -hmm. and a couple of people were, of course, on his side. But it was as if that, uh, I mean, I thought it was all good policy making sense. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, who's going to do the laundry, and who's going to do this, and who's, I mean... So what do you think about this? So I, I, my, my, I, I mentioned that because what you're saying about time-sensitive legislation, I think has to work down at the, the, the individual family roof line of, well, we're going to try this out, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you're going to be the team captain of, you know, raising the child for these two years, and then you know, no, it's, uh, we're going to flip it over, or I'm going to do that, and then I want some relief, you know? I mean, you're involved in those sorts of things now. How does that time-sensitive idea work for you at your family roofline level? It is absolutely the way that we structure everything that we do. I think that we flew by the seat of our pants for the first part of our relationship, and that worked okay in some respects and in other respects it didn't but once we hit about 30 which is uh, adulthood for millennials we started deciding to actually make time sensitive commitments to um, to our goals to our activities what have you so when the when the boy was coming along when rios was pregnant we made our whole plan and the idea was that I would stay home because my job allowed me to work from home uh, and essentially be in charge of taking care of him throughout the day. And then we would split duties um, uh, once she got home. But our plans now that Gus is, you know, he's here, he's great. Uh, now <laughs> He's here. He sure is. He certainly, you heard him on the phone earlier today. He's, uh, yeah. he's talking away. Uh, but he's got teeth. He's got teeth. Too. That's right. He sure does. Now our ideas and our plans have an 18 year time span, a 30 year time span. I'm beginning to, it's one of the reasons that I revisited the Sagrada Familia which has become my object. Uh, <laughs> this is not what this theory means at all, but, you know, object-oriented ontology. And I don't mean it the way that it's normally meant. I mean an ontology that's based around a ritual object that you can return to. But I like to return to the Sagrada Familia when I need to think about the smallness of my life and the fact that there are things that can be accomplished, fun that can be had, memories that can be created, all the things that make life worth living. If only I reckon with the limited time that I have left. And it is limited. I mean, I'm 35 now, but 
when I think back, just, you know, I mean, 35 years, if I were to tell, uh, you know, my niece who's 13, she thinks 35 is ancient, right? It's hard. It's you hard know, I, I always think of you in your late 20s. It's sort yeah. of, it's funny. It's like easier to sort of think of my own aging mm -hmm. uh, than yours. You know, I'm right. like, are you 35? Jesus Christ, yeah. what happened there, man? I'm 30. You know? <laughs> I know. Uh, I know. Kind of, kind of uh, makes makes me seem a little bit older but you know i i was i was you know i was talking Not seem yeah yeah that's true i was talking to my mother we went we took gus to the zoo and my mother and i were talking about aging and she said i want to live to 106 and i said mom i want i want you to live to 106 also and then i thought about it and i thought well that would make me 88 at that point and <laughs> and it would make Gus um thir uh, 50, 55. no fifty three he'd be fifty three uh, so I mean and this kind of thing you hear it so often I I trust my elders when they say this what's something you hear elderly people say all the time it all happens so fast right so I I just I take that seriously to move it down from this heady macro stuff back to your question which is very practical it it is i think very important to give ideas the breathing room of a year or two but realize that they are it's always possible to reassess after that and create a new plan but to strike that balance between not jumping ship too early but also not feeling trapped or uh coming victim to the sunk cost fallacy by sticking in it too long well i i i'm going to say that uh well there are a couple things there i i think that you know you mentioned you know 30 uh 30 is adulthood for for you know that's not going to change people who say 40 is the new 30 or 60 is the you know the new 50 so it's a little that. embarrassing isn't it no, just just shoot those people down uh, or throw a pie in their face. They yeah. they they don't deserve to be listened to. That's just nonsense. Things are not changing, and and some of these points I think are worth bringing up with uh, uh, my writer friend and colleague Joe, uh, the immortalist, who uh, is in the wings as our our next uh, or one of our upcoming guest eccentric uh, for a Zoom interview. Um, but I think that cultural amnesia is what is going to be the thing that kills us off. I, I'm going to, to really, one of the things I, I want to introduce is a sort of a new prediction element. I won't have one for every episode, but we've, we've touched on the idea that the notion of the singularity, which I think our listeners are familiar with, it's kind of a technological sort of apocalypse of, of new possibility where nanotechnology, robotics, AI converge, and we no longer are human. Uh, and that's kind of a fanciful sort of sci-fi idea. But I think if we look at it from a, a broader cultural and sociological frame, I think we, we have mentioned that the, uh, the possibility, the singularity has already happened, mm -hmm. and that we are in a kind of post-civilization mode. I absolutely think that's happening. I think that we are having micro-generational uh, accelerated dementia. 
uh, that is happening in, in very, very visible ways. Uh, so the discussion of history is kind of a nonsense, really. I mean, I, I, I'm not a professional historian, but I, I am absolutely stunned when I hear some people who you know, think they have any idea about history. Uh, the only people I know who do ha are, are so specialized uh, within academic frames, they really can't speak outside that. But the, the larger notion of the human story, because that, you know, we, we forget the story idea in history, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're losing any sense of that whatsoever. So I think the, idea, the problem with any kind of uh, time-sensitive thinking is that, well, I don't remember what I had for dinner, you know, and I haven't had dinner tonight yet, you know. It's like mm -hmm. people are really just losing the plot where routine and superstructure and the needs of, of job uh, and pressures are the only structural elements holding their minds together. Yeah, you know? yeah. Something that this brings to mind is an article that I read recently from Charles Eisenstein's Substack in terms of these long-term projects that orient who you are in at, at a point in a very long timeline that you won't be a part of for the majority of. And it's called the Great Green Wall Project. It is headed mm -hmm. by Dr. Elvis Paul Tangum. It's a fantastic name. Elvis that Paul Tangum. That is a fantastic Tangum. name. It's uh, like E. Power Biggs, the organist. That's a great name. Isn't it? Yeah. He's, the, he's of the African Union Commission. And the Great Green Wall is, uh, I'm just going to quote directly from the site here, is a reforestation, land healing, peace, water restoration, and anti-poverty project spanning the entire African continent from Senegal in the west to Eritrea nearly 5,000 miles to the east. Originally conceived as a way to contain the growth of the Sahara Desert, it is not simply a wall of trees, but a complex mosaic of indigenous land use techniques for restoring both life and livelihoods across the Sahel. Isn't that cool? So it's a it's a line of trees where they will bring together all of these techniques with the intent of actually uh, sort of changing the ecosystem of North Africa. Um, probably not deep into the Sahara, but you know around the area of the tree line for sure. And that's something that will have effects down the generations. Right. I mean, it'll have effects on all the African animals, both elephants and creatures that are unelephant like. Um, but I just thought that that was cool, man. I thought that that was uh, that's what we're talking about. Like, where are those projects? You know, we have people who work on road construction and. Of course, we expect to see the road in our lifetime, although I lived in El Paso, and that does not seem to be the goal of road construction in El Paso. But whether it's the Sagrada Familia or the Great Green Wall, these are not just things that might be good for the earth and for the, the local you know, 
flora and fauna, but but actually reshape uh, human brains into a very important word that I've been thinking about a lot, which is custodians, right? A, a, a custodial mm. relationship with the world around us, rather than extractive, consumeristic, custodial. Anyhow, I just wanted to share that with you. I thought that was I thought that was kind of neat. I think that is well. That's the kind of thinking that we need. I mean, we're, if we're going to survive as a species, and if planet Earth is going to survive as the space station that 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 we know it to be, and, and it, that it's possible for it to be, uh, that's the kind of thinking that's going to have to be embraced. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a little bit mysterious, I think. Um, when we when we turn uh, modernity around as an idea, and we start to ask, well, why isn't that kind of cooperative, collaborative uh, energy possible? Was it never possible in the past? Were people all was it? And you know, there's a lot of like the liberal answers, well, just greed, corporate greed, capitalism, you know. And I I don't buy that. I think that there there are many many examples of of uh, collaborative work where people who are enemies even see self-interest as being possible with mutual interest and I, I think that, that, that we, if we really had the knowledge of history uh, that we, we should have we could look back with you know and, and at least see some moments in the past where there were some really really serious uh, breakthrough ideas and uh, I do want to get around to the tool concept um, that I, I suggested last time with a, kind of a math direction um, but we, we did have a, a week in dissonance we've kind of gone off, gone off on some interesting um, lines of inquiry but uh, did you have anything in your weakened dissonance bag that you really felt you needed to bring forward? No, I'm gonna. I feel like I Flop took up. Out. No, I feel like I took up enough time with my pontificating. I think that the. I mean, the real estate crisis is a definite point of dissonance. I think, I think that I'll need some more time to think about it. But I believe that the recent development in in Canada with Trudeau. Um, you know, uh, bringing about this kind of bank freezing, labeling the trucker convoy as terrorists. Um, I think that that might be one of the most important historical uh, events of my lifetime, with no exaggeration. Um, but as- I, I agree with that, and I, th- I wonder if, uh, I, I certainly, I, I'm absolutely in, in agreement with that from uh, you know, a kind of ideological standpoint. I wonder, though, if if the uh, if Trudeau being nearer, in, how old is Trudeau? I've forgotten. Um, he's in he's his late thirties, early forties, maybe forty-two, yeah, so, something like that. Well, I, I, I mean, in, in in the old currency, uh, he's uh, part of your generation. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, you may not think of him quite that way, but he's oh, he's, he's pretty 50. close. He's fifty. Oh, is he? Oh, yeah, okay. I guess well, that. he's. he's Got a baby he's face. too pretty for uh-huh. he's too pretty for uh, for that. But I, I I think that there is something very concerning about that. And you and I have had private discussions about what's going on in Australia and New Zealand. That and I have to say, uh, and I've been very um, you know I've been in I, I sold my place my condo on the twenty seventh, and I've been in limbo, hovering across a couple of different 
uh, interim situations. But I've met a lot of people in transit and in flux, and you know, I've really gotten out of my you know comfort zone to to talk to people and very interesting. Uh, and of course, we've had a couple of major events like the Super Bowl and the Olympics and stuff, and that kind of gets people talking. Uh, but I, I do think there's um, a sense that uh, the well, the masks came off here in Nevada the other day, and it w there was a, a palpable sort of sense of relief, and there was also uh, a group of people who have just simply they're 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 not going to take the masks off, sure. and and I think in a way. Because Las Vegas is a very reasonable city. I know people don't think of it that way, but to me, it's a, it's a real, uh, it's completely integrated. It's one of the most integrated American cities there can be. We have a very very uh, low key uh, sociality day to day. I think if you remove gambling and the gambling debt problem, uh, we would really be on top of a lot of things. Uh, but that, of course, employs a lot of people. I don't think we have the drug and homelessness problem that, say, cities like San Francisco and Seattle and Portland have. Um, it's a lot of more just basic common sense, and, and you mm -hmm. feel a good vibe from people. But I have to say, I think that the, the, there's a tension uh, in and around the mask situation that, to me, is sharper uh, and, and just tenser. Than, than going all the way back to the original lockdown, you know, mm -hmm. um, and and that does uh, that that obviously is a concern. Um, so there are some uh, some certainly some some issues of dissonance. One of my students has put forward something which I think is uh, I'm really proud of her. She's uh, she's not a, a, a luminous mind, but she's a very disciplined researcher. And we need those people. We need, if we're going to have fact checkers and data driven people, we want them accurate and committed. And uh, she's done a real interesting investigation, hardcore, uh, looking at landfill <clears throat> and the amount of masks and plastic bags that the pandemic has created. And, you know, just when we were turning around the plastic bag thing, I mean, I, I had, I still have in the back of my car. You know these really great bags I would take into the supermarket, my um, supermarket of choice, and of course everybody stopped doing that. So she's really uh, clocked in some amazing research about the world uh, explosion of non-recyclable trash that the pandemic has created. Um, so when we talk about the psychological, you know, aftermath and, and kids who may, you know, never be able to talk and mm -hmm. just are lost in video games. Well, there's also just a lot of, you know, stuff in landfill that, that, that didn't need to be there or that wasn't there or that we were turning the corner on. So that was one of my, uh, uh, points in dissonance this week. But the thing that really blew me <laughs> and it somehow... It, it goes back to, this, to the Zondi test, your imaginative challenge. I don't know if people saw this. Uh, it, it was pretty widely reported, but um, humans, particularly Americans, have come forward with a new composite face of God. 
and they can't quite decide if it's God or Jesus. They're, they're going to go God and, and, and sort of the big divinity thing. But it, it kind of, it makes me think of Richard Dreyfus playing a nice suburban dad, mm-hmm. uh, elementary or junior high teacher, or um, Mr. Berkowitz, the son of Sam Murderer. I can't quite decide. But yeah. I, I, I looked at that face of God idea and I thought, I'm really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, you sent it to me over text, and it made me very uncomfortable. It reminded me of that famous drawing, Have You Seen This Man in Your Dreams? Uh, yes. Yeah, it's, it, there's something yeah, very Yeah, you got on the paranoia thing very instantly. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to say a single word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I find that... Uh, well, it's disturbing to me, because it's one of the things that you and I both are concerned with, sort of the neutering... Of, of males and masculinity. Sure. I see that happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also see it's kind of like a, a revelation of, of deep perversity of this is someone who you do see in your dreams and you don't want to see in your dreams. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you know, yep. so it's kind of weird. It, it's neutered and uh, nice. Oh, so nice. Mm-hmm. But it's also weird as, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, um, before we move into your tools, I know this isn't normally the way we do it, but I think I have a really cool response to the challenge, and it sort of piggybacks off of what you just said. So do you think I could put oh, it let's here? let's break form. Yeah, let's break format. We're, we're flexible, man. We're, we're, we're putting our, you know, our feet behind our heads and pretzeling and, you know, yeah, I think that's cool. Cool. Okay. Break format. So we'll do this, and then the tool and then the tip, and then the dream. So, I um, going off the Zondi test here, uh, you mentioning the face of God directs, or actually um, connects to this very nicely. So, if I was an MK Ultra scientist, which would mean that I was evil, and I did have carte blanche to do what I wanted to do with my patients, it would also mean that I had access to all that data that social media has been collecting on people for the past yes, 20 it years. Would. So, yes, it would. Yes, it would. Here is what I would want to do. I was thinking about this Twitter account called This Person Does Not Exist, and every day there is a randomly computer-generated face of somebody who does not exist. You take 12 of those, Ooh. you take a dozen of those, and you Im- you imbue each one of those faces with an artificial intelligence. Now, the artificial intelligence is a composite of a particular element of the subject's personality mixed in with some other personality traits from other users. But every single one of these 12 like Jesus's 12 disciples has a little bit of you in it, right? I love it. <laughs> then you animate those faces using deep fake technology to begin conversations with the subject and you begin to take notes. You begin Ooh. to see which personality on these faces that do not exist, which elements 
of the of the subject's own personality does he or she vibe with the most which one can he not stand which one does he really warm up to and then as a fun addendum that would be the gist of the of the study but as a fun addendum if i was feeling particularly evil i was really compelled by this quote that i saw this week that said uh, the ability to break a will scales with how absurd the demand becomes right so then with right. the personalities that. Yeah. that the uh that the subject relates to the most what's the craziest thing you could get that person to believe right that you know that peanut butter is talking to them that red is actually blue could you get them <gasps> to change a political opinion so that would be that would be my evil mk ultra zombie test Look, I like that. That's you know, there there are some echoes and resonances with L. Ron Hubbard's ideas, and as you know, as insane as he might have been, uh, I think his knowledge of human nature it really um, you know can't be questioned. There, there's a kind of, um, I mean, he would be one of those people you'd want to head your MK Ultra perverse, uh, you know, psychological division, you know, down into the desert or whatever. I think there's some interesting ideas there. I like that idea. Um, and I think what's interesting for people who know uh, much about sort of the history of what became popular psychology in the 60s. So coming out of the Freud Jungian sort of world where we got the Esalen Institute, we got Eric Byrne, we got a whole bunch of people who really were writing, publishing and, you know, pretty serious folks in, in, in the 40s they began to get major, major commercial attention in the 60s. And I think a lot of their ideas get caricatured as a result of that. Um, I, think, I think Eric Berners is still very interesting the same way I think that Buckminster Fuller is, or, you know, uh, or Toffler is with Future Shock. I think there's a lot of really interesting ideas there. But what you've got going with your response, which I think is really, really cool, is it shows that where some of the really, really bizarre ideas have come from, particularly in psychology or, say, anthropology, they might have come from some very innocent and, and, and well-thought-out initial ideas they're 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 not in and of themselves mischievous or evil right. it's a spectrum and they cross over because surely i mean if we look at just the mk ultra thing i mean there were people who were very legitimate scientists and i can't believe they were all just evil malignant psychopaths you know i just don't believe that mm -hmm. i think they got led into that very very slowly and they thought they were maybe researching, you know, into the heart of, of the whole um, definition of humanity. And they, they simply had an open checkbook and uh, a lot of closed doors. And we know that that's a recipe for getting up to, uh, you know, some real mischief. Yeah. So, yeah. no, that was good. I like that. Good. Okay, cool. Yeah, as far as the MK Ultra thing goes, I don't, I suppose it depends on your definition of what what evil is i think that they were more than likely all very wrong-headed 
because the objective to MK Ultra is to hack into the human brain. And you're right insofar as the thought process went that you could hack into somebody's brain and make them happy all the time or make them a productive member of society. Um, but I guess it sort of really depends on your moral stance on hacking into other people's brains in the first place. Yeah, and I, I think from the start they were trying to weaponize intelligence mm -hmm. operatives, either either to dismantle an enemy's uh, Manchurian candidate operative or to create their own. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was really... Uh, I always liked that, that TV show, Nowhere Man. Uh, I've forgotten the actor, Bruce Greenlow, is that his name? Um, he's a really good actor. Um, he was only on for, for one season, but I thought it was really, really interesting, and I do happen to know where Bryce, it to no. in the end. No, sorry, I'm trying Bruce, to look it up for you. Um, Bruce uh, Green something, Greenlow. He's a, he's a pretty well-known actor. He's been in a lot of... He plays both yeah. villains and heroes. He's Bruce Greenwood. He's the, yeah. He, yeah, Greenwood. Yeah, um, and and it's really a, very much a Manchurian candidate sort of story. Um, I'm actually working on one of these myself. It's called Remote Listener. I think I mentioned to you like an idea of like a book idea. I'm doing it now in terms of a multimedia album sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. My sort of expressions of music and and voiceover and kind of minimalist storytelling because I think we know the story you know it's a born you know born legacy ultimatum yeah you know, right that kind of story uh, where someone has been given you know a particular capability in this case the you know kind of a scanners like capability of, of super listening super perception which is enough to drive everyone mad or anyone mad and that's exactly what happens um, so I don't think I need to tell that story. I can kind of just flirt around with it and just sort of create mood and then have a couple of critical moments. But um, I think those, I, the the psychology of the Cold War just gave us that uh, Manichaean good and evil, you know, black versus white, dark side, good side, you know, us versus them. And that's, just a recipe for for strangeness but i like the that your point about well what can we do to people where we're we're frustrating them or we're confusing them at such a at, at a basic level and that that's how we undo their deeper thinking because i think that's very much mm -hmm. what uh psyops is really based on you know every time i've changed my mind it has been because i liked the person first I have never changed my mind with, uh, it's, it's why I've never been, for example, taken in by people like Tucker Carlson or who I think is fine, but you know, Ben Shapiro or, you know, some of these, some of these personalities, Rachel Maddow, right? Because I don't like them to begin with. So I'm predisposed to not listen to them, but you know, mm -hmm. I like Alex Jones. He seems, he seems fun. So, so let's listen to him. But um, what are we going to talk about as far as the tip goes today? Okay, well, before the tip, we've got sort of... I, I oh, I'm sorry, the, 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 the tool is what I meant the, to the say. The tool, yeah. I, yeah we're, I was we thinking tool when I said I, tip is, is what happened, but yeah. 
Well, we're, we're, we're it, it's, it's hard to get close to this, okay? So we're, we're really thinking about the idea of moving away from linguistic conceptual models of tools as ways to, of, of magic, magic protection in, in, a, in a completely crazy media culture. Um, and I suggested that, that people have a review of, of Euclid, uh, you know, the, the, the Greek uh, ultimate geometer. I mean, we have the idea of, of you, you know, Euclidean geometry, and I said that actually up until pretty recently that was uh, kind of a weird uh, redundancy because that was the only form of geometry there was. And I, when I go back and look at that, I, I, what I see is an immense achievement of, of structured mind that is really so lucid and so clear and I, if we if we overvalue uh, some of the Greek contributions and you know there are a lot of people who claim that and um, you know they, they claim that's sort of a racist thing to do and I I hear that but in fact geometry comes out of that amalgam of and that crossroads of, of Greece Egypt North Africa uh, and then, of course, huge contributions from India and China. So I think that the notion that mathematics in that STEM, you know, that the M in STEM is somehow uh, racist is, is, is really one of the most um, bizarre and just simply wrong-headed ideas that there could ever be. Mm -hmm. But if we do look at Euclid's ideas, his building on from axioms to postulates to, you know, bigger programs... What he was really searching for, what, what, what was the goal there, was to establish a framework of some kind of certainty of knowledge. And I think that we forget today that knowledge is truly inclusive if we want to be included within it. If you want to be stupid and just watch TV and eat Cheetos, okay, well, you're not going to be included in human knowledge. But knowledge itself, as a world tradition, welcomes every mind, every heart, every soul. And I think we need to get back to that. And I really strongly encourage people to review some of the great original uh, science and, and mathematics works. Euclid's elements are very, very easy to follow. That was the whole point. And what was his point? Well, if we look back at the history of that, we see the Greeks had a couple of really, really big ideas. Their original philosophers, sort of proto-scientists, they were concerned with two questions. Is the world one thing or many? And is change real? Is change actually possible? And therefore, is it a necessity? And out of that very basic physics-driven approach to philosophy, there emerged a focus on language. And we suddenly get the sophists. We get a sense of language being possible. We get rhetoric, the beauty of rhetoric. But we also get the capability for deception, for confusion, for obfuscation. And it's exactly at the point that you could really comes in and tries to establish a framework of what we can be certain about. I mean, think about it. Through any two points in space, what a remarkable idea that is. There is one line. You know? Mm -hmm. what, a, what a thought. Mm -hmm. The product 
of an odd and an even number. Just think of what an odd and even number. I mean, that's that, that's a non-reducible idea. If you don't accept 13 as an odd number, uh, there's no, you know, there, there's no explanation for it. Mm. And and when you know Gus is going to get through you know the multiplication tables, well, why is three cubed or three times three nine? Well, you know, you have to kind of just accept that. But if you go back to Euclid's beginning point, take the notion of two squared. What a what a beautiful concept that is. It's a spatial concept. Mm -hmm. It's spatial. And I think that this harkens back to your earlier thing about time sensitive. We forget that the other key aspect is, is physical space. And that this is what was driving a lot of the, the mathematical thinking, the search for certainty, the search for some basis of, of a set of premises that we could agree on. And then we can build conversations, we can build debates, we can build we can build a civilization, but we have to have some solid ground. And Euclid gives us that. And he really addresses, I think, however consciously or not, he addresses some of the real complexities and confusions that language offered us, which still trap us all. So my tool here is try to do a mental inventory of even if you find just one one conceptual leverage point that you are absolutely convinced of that you simply can't do without that is not reducible that is just not reducible that this is this is what you're working with this is what you're bringing to the table of any discussion any processing of information any relationship you have uh, you know whatever we all have some baseline things that we're using. Uh, and if we can just get our hands on those in a more articulate sort of way, and Euclid is a great way to do that because he's looking at things in an apparently sort of neutral sort of setting. I mean, what's the sum of an odd and an even number? Think about that versus what's the product as in when they're multiplied. I mean, how do you how did that mind work that out mm -hmm. those are core core ideas upon which uh, all of, of, of civilization and culture hinge and we've got to break through cultural amnesia and get back to appreciating where some of these absolutely deep grammar ideas come from and it frankly doesn't matter what race or sex or gender or, or whatever the people involved in that because they're kind of mythic figures anyway. We don't care, but we do need to focus on the ideas that they had. And as a pitch for our book club, which uh, I hope we can get started next week, Robert Irwin, who is the subject uh, of the biographical portrait that we're looking at by Lawrence Weschler, he has a beautiful line in the book that I think is really worth thinking about where he says, I, I believe that there is a dialogue of imminence that is part of human history, whereby certain questions become answerable at certain moments in history. 
I think that it's a beautifully optimistic idea. I think it's true. And I think it, it is a way of looking at the extension of my tool idea of trying to think about, well, what are some of the, the what is just even one basic thing that you use in your thinking, your speech, your processing of information, your relationships? What is one non-reducible idea that you just assume and can't do without? Your fundamental multiplex tool. If you just have one idea about that that you've not had before, that's, that's the tool. But then to think about in bigger terms, well, what is our time? If we, if we accept Irwin's idea as a, that there is a dialogue of imminence, well, what are the big questions of our time? And I, I think, let's take off the table, will the human species survive? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that is of our time. I think that we've had apocalyptic notions for, since Forever. the get-go, you know, I, I, if people say, well, it's more, it's more real now, yeah, right. it's more possible. Yeah. Okay. Well, That's I don't know about says. that. Yeah, I mean, I think that diseases came, floods came, volcanoes came. You know, no, I think that we'll take that off the table, and let's think more positively about what questions. Because Irwin is a is a beautiful optimist. That's why I wanted us to to look at him. I think we need more optimism. What questions are becoming answerable now, culturally? Culture, capital C, ghost radio signal, you know? So that, and that kind of ties back in with what we were talking about from the very start about big policies versus family roofline level living. And I, I like that sort of dichotomy, that oscillation of jumping between, you know, the big moments, the big questions, and, you know, who you're in bed with, and, and who's uh, pulling at your coattails, and who's got teeth, and who doesn't, and, you know, who needs to be fed, and, you know, that, that immediate family level, and then the big cultural level. But it, was that a clear enough tool? I mean, I think that I'm, I, I want to set up a framework for talking more in terms of, of mathematics. I, I, I do want to get back to the notion of zero as a remarkable idea. Um, but what I'm talking about is that any kind of human thinking, and certainly all forms of communication, hinge on either uh, some sort of... of set of, uh, of axioms, postulates, right. assumptions that, that we work on and that we, that we can prove in some sort of way so that it's not just a, an, an endless social construct. And for people who think, well, everything's just made up by humans and it can change because of who's in power, who's got the money, you know, uh, I, I encourage those people particularly to go back to Euclid's Elements and I would also throw in uh, Newton's uh, Principia. I, I think that his notion of, of, of the you know the core uh, rules of, of, of mechanics at the at the Newtonian level. I mean, he deserves that term. Um, why did those questions? Why did his formulation become reasonable? You know, in the 17th century, what 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 made that possible? And I think that's. So there's a few things going on there, but I, I want us to think about what assumptions 
that we absolutely hinge on. And I think that we can look at that really in relationship terms, uh, how we approach information in terms of the media and processing Mm -hmm. new stuff, all the way to the big cultural level. But we've got to get our hands on that and not take that stuff for granted. Yeah, this is fascinating to me for a couple reasons. The first one is, and this is maybe, this might strike you as funny, but I have actually never visualized math before this conversation. I might not have had very good math teachers, but when you were talking about, well, what does it mean for three to be cubed or two to be cubed i suddenly pictured two points and then a cube generating from that and how many how many points that that cube would have right if it sprung out from exactly. those two points i had never thought about that in that way at all which is very exciting to me uh i i, I love being able to think in a in a new and different way who knows where this will take me the second thing that i really liked as i was listening to you talk the idea of an axiom that is irreducible is very hard to come up with i was thinking while you were talking i was trying to come up with my own sort of set of of axioms from which to build a structural um, epistemological frame for life it's tough man that's actually it pretty is. fucking hard to, th- to think about what, what what do i think like what what are my my core axioms here my sort of elegant uh yeah, so it's a it's a you know it's a, a, a treacherously simple tool that's really not simple at all, but very cool. One of my favorite tools that you've had so far, I think. It's very cool to me. Well, thank you. I, I think that we'll, we'll we'll unpack it further, but you know, underlying it, I think, is this notion of well, if if big things like you know the possibility of cultural innovation and Evolution, you know, if these big things are possible, then we should be able to see them at kind of micro levels. And we should be able to to kind of put forward some ideas of our own. And it's very difficult. It's like trying to invent a new word and have it really click. You know, it just, it's not easy. It's not easy. (coughs) And you start to think, well, maybe there's 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 more to this whole humanity thing than we than we've really given credit for. I mean, mm. what what's going on? Maybe maybe all our ideas are are just simply you know not let's not say wrong, but just not accurate because we haven't had that depth of, of understanding and thinking about you know. So I'm glad you liked that. I've, I've got so I've I've got a good way to build on that for next time because I think that. The, the, the idea of math being very physical and very spatial and about measurement and quantification and dealing with, uh, you know, building things, making things, a lot of us really didn't have that background. You know, it's, it was too conceptual. It was too much, you got to remember this, learn this, and, and no reason, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it came about. That's mm-hmm. a misrepresentation of the, of the history of mathematics. 
And I think if we get back to uh, where these lines of inquiry, you know, before they were science, you know, follow the science, the institutional ossified science, they, they were very flexible, fluid, stumbling, fumbling, magical, mistaken, weird, radical uh, ideas trying to find shape and form and, and relevance, you know. Uh, so we, we've got to get back to that search, that inquiry, that fumbling, you know. That's, that's the, it's kind of like sex, you know, going back to the idea of like, well, I'm not really sure how to take a bra off, but, you know, I'm going to try, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to, and I'm going to have fun with the fumbling, you know, sure. it's, uh, if my, if, if the spirit's right and there's consent and the, the, the mood is good, uh, I'm not sure the technique is really, you know, the technique is what you're searching for and building on. That's not the final goal, you know? And also it's never wrong to ask for help. That's Right. That's right. That, and, you know, I think that is something I've gotta that a see, lot of people... I've got to see the boobs. So I don't care who has to help me see them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and really that is, uh, uh, you know, so true across all walks of life. People are, the right people are waiting to help. You know, uh, I, I think we, we kind <laughs> yeah. of, we forget that and it's just all this fear of not having the right answer or not being able to do everything. And it's like, no, it's just like, no, I don't know how to do that, you know. Uh, but I, I want to. Why, why don't we do it together, you know. that yep. There is that possibility, mm-hmm. you know. Across right. everything, not just, you know, not just sex at all. Just a whole bunch of things. Yeah, but know? it's always good to bring it back to something that we... We can all relate to. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, something that should be fundamentally teamwork. Whatever your orientation, persuasion, whatever turns you on, I suggest that teamwork is a, is kind of a crucial aspect. Teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah, that's what that's they say. Right. So, Chris, you got a tip, uh, tip for us? Pro tip. Well, I do. Um, and I think it ties in with kind of what we've just been talking about. Of Okay, so you need help. And there are people out in the world who are willing to, you know, provide that. Well, how do you actually tell uh, if someone knows what they're talking about? I mean, how do you make those decisions? We're all being forced to make these decisions all the more. And then we get asked these endless questions about, well, could you review our customer service and, you know, post a review on Yelp or Amazon? Or it's like, oh, leave me alone. I, I thought your product was complete shit. I'm doing you a favor not to review it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you. If you're uh, living with a partner, you may have some backup in terms of, well, I didn't like that person. I don't think we should go to that loan officer or I don't like this company. Or So you, you, you've got some feedback, some, some wall to bounce things off. You've also got you know, potentially more uh, turmoil, more, more conflict. So it's, it's not an easy sort of uh, answer, sort of solution. Well, here's my tip. I have made peace, and I or I'm making peace with the notion of artificial intelligence, mm. because I think that is 
uh, you know, I, I just think that you know we've talked about the inevitability of progress in certain forms, and I think that is the way things are going. But how do you process that information? So I was I was down in the lobby, uh, and this family rocked up, you know, Super Bowl Sunday, and there was a, a classic new figure, uh, the overly friendly dad. Mm. David, if you ever become this, I'm going to shoot you. I, I mean, he was a nice guy. He really is. <laughs> and his beard wasn't over the top. But uh, he's just a little bit too, you know, involved in being the, you know, the friend of his children. And right. he's a big guy, athletic, and he was trying to teach his, his son, who I don't think really has much athletic ability yet, maybe he will, how to catch a football with his hands, not his whole body, because if you catch with your chest, the ball bounces off. And, you know, I mean, I just... It's great that dads are doing that, but I think that, you know, get your kid in a, in, a, in, a, in a football program and have him learn from... Anyway, that's just me. But the family rocks up to this uh, motel hotel with an enormous chocolate poodle, you know? Mm-hmm. Like a big poodle that's really springy and hyper. And the dad is in charge of the poodle. And over the course of three days, they're here. Every time I see the dad, I see the poodle, okay? And I think to myself, you know, an artificial intelligence approach to this would be that the dad and the poodle are one entity. Mm -hmm. That would be a perfectly valid algorithm. I I know it's not right. You know it's not exactly right. But on the other hand, is it it not right? Mm -hmm. The dad is always present with the poodle. So ask the question, do you ever see the poodle on its own? No. Do you ever see the dad on its own? No. You always see the dad and the poodle. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the algorithm is actually right. The poodle and the dad are one. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an example of algorithmic, maybe not artificial intelligence, but that's what algorithms are. If we train ourselves to think like that so that we can code switch, that lovely NPR term of, you know, code switching, uh, I think that's very, a very handy skill. And I think it's a way to reposition some of our really embedded, assumptive ideas and to think them a new way. I mean, ask yourself. What would an algorithmic approach to J. David Osborne look like? Mm-hmm. You know, and and there is information you could access that from your Amazon purchase. You could access that from a lot of different points of view, and I think there's some really good reason to do that. You know, mm-hmm. so that's my tip is is to we've got to get over fear of of uh, AI. We've got to get over an embrace of of Siri and you know whoever those these artificial women that we're telling to play music to and they're really telling us what's going on. Think of it in a broader algorithmic terms as a way of getting a new handle on new perspectives because that's what we're really talking about. All right. I like it. I'll have to think about that one. I'm a, a bit allergic to giving an inch to our machinic overlords, but your point is taken. Your point is definitely taken. Yeah, I, I think it really is because of the overlord thing. And, and, and I, I feel that too. I, I really, I think this is about trying to reposition 
in a psychic defense way uh, to gain some more sovereignty ah, again. Learning how to think like the enemy. Yeah, that's okay. that's the that's the that's the message. That's it. Okay, okay, I can vibe with that for sure. Now, my psychic dreamscape has been very vivid as of late. There's been a, a, a psychic heaviness in the air that I'm sure that you've felt a kind of um, a kind of weight. I think that's not entirely unpleasant. Maybe sort of like a I don't know, like a, a, a dog falling asleep on your chest or something like that. Uh, hmm. I know that you've been I having like uh, uh, issues with the probate court and the house and things like that, but I mean in a, in a broader sense. And this kind of tenor has been reflected or amplified or uh, refracted through my dreamscape. Uh, so I'm interested to hear what your dream was this week, because it's, it it just it feels like the the um, chthonic weather has been has has been a little blustery lately. Oh, it has been. Well, okay. I'll um. So I I'm, I'm in a kind of you know night motel hotel. Certainly nothing fancy, but just very comfortable. But. Uh, I wasn't sleeping well the other night, and I woke up, and I, I had a, a glass of water, and my dream had been really kind of frustratingly stupid, that it was it was a COVID-related dream of where we'd all snap back to, there were some new variants had come through, and we'd snap back to lockdowns, and no one talking to each other, and these other sort of new masks things. But I went back to, I, I just, I thought, no, I'm, I just, I'm not going to accept that dream, and I went straight back to sleep. And I entered immediately into a very, very different realm. Hyper-realistic, but very, uh, well, sort of like a, um, a Cronenberg film kind of art direction treatment. I was in a really weird uh, version of Portland with monorails and uh, just a, a very strange vibe around the river. And I got uh, hustled at this market uh, by this this chick, and uh, I thought, well, she's kind of really kind of hot, and uh, I ended up going back to her place with her, and she was involved in a kind of uh, not like Antifa or Antifa or whatever the pronunciation of those people but a much darker and weirder uh, religious order um, called the Black Knights Posse of Universal uh, Vengeance. And I thought, well, that's kind of a heavy hit. Well, what these people were involved in was uh, murdering major celebrities. Mm -hmm and ritually destroying them. Matt Damon was one of them. Uh, uh, Poor Matt the, Damon. Uh, oh, Sandra Bullock was on the list. So there's this enormous tote board of these celebrities. And the idea is to not only think of uh, particularly gruesome, like Dante-esque 
uh, torture treatments of them. Mm. Not just simple uh, assassin, take them out. No, 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 no. This was much more sort of medieval. It was like an Umberto Eco sort of... if you if you had Umberto Eco doing sort of a, a medieval but also Indian thug, you know, assassin cult thing, where we're taking out the cream of Hollywood, and and not just Hollywood, some of the worst punishments and uh, plans for ultimate execution were those kind of uh, like the women on the View, you know. Uh, Joy Behar, 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 whatever Behar. her name is, you know? Yeah, Behar. Behar. Well, like, she was a real target, and there was just these portfolios of possible, uh, really hideous medieval kind of torture and beautifully art-directed. And and some of these things had happened and in the in the dream world, and some of them were, were just plans. But the, the, the group was religiously focused on moving up a ladder of, of spiritual dark ascent based on who they could take down and take into this sort of uh, world of, of punishment and, uh, well, universal vengeance. And I, I came out of that, that dream thinking... Um, I was trying to link it to my the earlier sort of very pedestrian COVID anxieties. And to me, it was a kind of... Uh, I, I think we are at a turning point where we are starting to really dismantle celebrity. Remember when we, we earlier had a couple of... We had a series devoted to the cult of celebrity. And I, I think this is a real turning point. I think we're getting tired of these people. I think we're getting tired of their placeholder status. They're lecturing us about, you know, the moral ways to do things. Their constant representation of multiple products. I mean, sports figures, movie stars, music, I just, I think we're tired of them. And this group of people had a kind of really cool, but very, very sinister and sick uh, religious cult focusing on uh, their final destruction. So that was my dream. I love that. I've been thinking a lot about celebrity culture lately. Maybe we can start off with that next time. But I love that term, the Black Knight's Posse of Universal Vengeance. Um, that make a killer title for a book yeah. or a short story or <laughs> right? something like you that. Know, like, that would just I- be awesome I, I i like the idea of this dream force of celebrity murderers uh a la a dark version of the invisibles or something like that like we are the black knight's posse of universal vengeance and you know when they show up in your dream you know jason momoa is getting decapitated uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly stellan you know? skarsgård is getting drawn and quartered uh, Kim Kardashian is having her implants removed with surgical equipment. Uh, I won't get any darker. Exactly, than that, but yeah. Well, it, it, you're, the mind does go this way, and I, I, I think that this is an interesting way to think about, you know, celebrity going the other way. Is that uh, there? There's something deeply perverse about it. it, it it's it, it, you know, these people are too important to us. Uh, for what they're giving us back, and mm-hmm. 
at some point, you know, maybe that's going to really turn, you know. And I, I, I did have a really, I had a good creepy feeling coming out of that dream. I, I, had, a, I had a real appetite for breakfast. Mm-hmm. You know those dreams? You think, oh, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of wake up hard and fit and just ready to roar. I, I actually came out, because I'd been feeling kind of, the COVID dream had kind of thrown me off and I was in the middle of the night. I just felt, oh, dude. But I woke up feeling like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I was putting some of these words through an anagram generator just because I'm, I'm interested. So, uh, universal vengeance, an anagram of which is uh, uh, evanescence unraveling. Black. Oh, nice. Black knight is uh, blight, knack and knack. Blight knack. Ooh. So a knack like for that too. Knack for blight and evanescence unraveling. That's pretty cool stuff. That's poetry, isn't it? That's really sure beautiful. Is. That's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. So that's lovely. Uh, well, this has been fun as always. Um, we will get back with you next week, and I'll be in touch on the Patreon for all the book club stuff. I am gloriously, thankfully, sincerely happy to be done with uh, with my editing. I've I've edited five hundred thousand words in the past three weeks so that sounds grueling man i think you've done very well to uh well you're sounding really great it's sounding really upbeat so it, it obviously didn't tax you to the point where it, you know it's just good to be over it's just it's yeah. i'm just glad that it's over and i have a, a novella that i'm excited to write uh which i think you need that that kind of heavy workload because the the feeling of freedom that you get when you're done is extremely conducive to the creative process. I'm I'm not somebody who can be, um, you know, sort of a, a a sort of layabout and just kind of do my art whenever. I have to to squeeze it out of the the, the tiny cracks of time that I have to do it in. So. You know. All the good people are like that. I think yeah. that's very healthy. It's reassuring to hear that. I think that that's the only way to go. You know. Yeah. It's a fight. You know. It's a fight. It's, yeah. It's, it's not a fight. I mean, I feel like I don't have anything. To, that's why you know the, these these podcasts are so great for me because the podcasts and the writing are are really just my my two outlets for these for these things. So I come to play uh, in in both of them, um, in in both mediums, I should say. But anyhow, uh, holy cow, we must have been having fun. This one ran late. I hope you enjoyed this, yeah. folks. It's uh, it's kind of a longer episode, but hey, sometimes you just got a lot of shit to talk about, right? Um, That's right. That's right. And we could have gone on longer because we didn't. There's just, I mean, there's a ton of stuff that we didn't even get to. So yeah. I think that's good. You know, that shows that there's, you know. You always want more of the tank, for God's sakes. You That's know? right. So, That's right. But thank everyone for listening. And, uh, yeah, follow up the Euclid thing. I, I, I do want to pursue that in terms of some... And I'm going to try to focus that in terms of more tools. And I think Dave did a great job on that imaginative challenge. And there's something really uh, crazy and floppy and, uh, well, flippery, you know, mm. coming up next time for him. Uh, yeah, there's some flipper action next time. So it's... Uh, it's going to get weirder and weirder. Absolutely. Here for it. All right, everybody. Good night. Take care.